I'm going to pray this morning, and uh, let's just ask God to do powerful work. I, I'm, I'm kind of encouraged this morning and excited what I believe God wants to do in our lives, and I'm hoping that uh, those of you that maybe became a little discouraged or frustrated or uptight or any of those scenarios going on in your life, maybe the challenges that are pressing in, that you will leave today going, wow, I just got a vision of the amazing nature of who God is, how great he is, and I'm able to handle what's happening in my life right now because I'm addressing some of the things inside of me so God can work through me. And I'm going to pray to that end. How many? I'm basically going to share that I believe that you guys could be David slaying your own giants called Goliath in your own soul. How's that? Let's pray. Lord. Thank you this morning for these amazing people that come to worship your name. The singing was so incredible. I know you delighted in our praises. And Father, I, I just believe today that you want to do something supernatural in our lives, that you want to plant incredible seeds to encourage us in the days forward. I pray today for those that may be in despair or discouragement or challenged, uh, and they just may be feeling overwhelmed. I pray as we leave this place today, may we walk out of here full of joy, full of hope, full of excitement, and full of anticipation of the good things that you are and about to do in and through our lives. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, so often people say, I don't like reading the Old Testament because of all the craziness that goes on there, all the battles, all the challenges there. I just don't relate to all of those things, Pastor. But I think why we don't relate to it is because we're living in a time that's a lot different, number one. Number two, our, we're not really in a lot of conflict. I mean, militarily, we're not at war, uh, you know, except for maybe some uh, issues in Afghanistan or Iraq. But as Canadians, we're really not engaged at that level as we read about in the Old Testament. The reality is the Old Testament is a concrete picture of visible realities Whereas when we move to the New Testament, what we find there are invisible spiritual realities. And I want to bring those two together a little bit today because I think there is a battle going on. But the battle isn't always external and it's not always against uh, nations or against enemies, but the battle, the biggest battle that's going on right now is within ourselves. That may be the greatest battle that's happening. And so one of the problems we face is that as Christians, we forget we're in a battle. How many say that's probably true? A lot of times, I forget I'm in a battle, and a lot of times what happens to me is I get caught up with the conflict of the people or the situations that I'm in, and I'm frustrated by something, and I seem to be focusing more on what's happening externally, more what's happening with people, and I get frustrated with the individuals, and I lose sight of the fact that I'm actually in a spiritual battle, and it's not even the people that are my adversaries, it's actually principalities and powers that are trying to defeat me. How many say... A lot of times I lose sight of that. Anybody here willing to admit that? Oh, a few of you are saying, yeah, I get caught up with life. Isn't that truth? Uh, probably one of the greatest moments of spiritual warfare in the Old Testament is found in that amazing story of David and Goliath. And I'm not going to focus a long time there, but David encounters this giant. And I think we can all relate to that story because many times we see ourselves as underdogs confronted by enormous challenges in our lives. 
And in David slaying the giant, something in our spirit ascends and rejoices at the defeat of the intimidating power of evil. Isn't that great? How many love it when evil is brought down? How many love it when, you know, there's something terrible that's happening and it comes to an end? When we can actually do something about this terrible thing that's occurring beyond us. And we love that story because of that. And yet I see that David realized that the battle really wasn't him. Even though David's fighting the battle, how many know what motivated David and and paralyzed the rest of them was David saw the Lord. You see, he saw the context of the battle in the right way. I think David, you could almost put him in the New Testament. He got a vision of the invisible realities, so he was able to address the visible realities. How many see that? When he came to the giant, he didn't see the nine-foot armored giant. And by the way, in the Bible, when you get deep physical descriptions, you know that that's very important because the Bible rarely does that. And so the point is, is how engaged, how terrifying, how intimidating, dating this giant really was and how the nation of military strength was paralyzed by him. But David said, you've defied the name of the Most High God. And let me tell you something, buddy, you are going to come down because you're not fighting human beings. You're actually fighting Almighty God. Therefore, in a sense, you've already lost this battle. And so David recognized that. And sometimes we don't recognize that in our own soul. Sometimes we've been fighting with a giant so long we feel paralyzed in our inner being and we feel defeated in our lives and therefore we feel we'll never get free and never be able to go forward. How many have ever felt that way about something in your life where you've never said, you know, I just don't feel I can get free from this. But I want to declare to you today that the battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's and he is greater than your troubles today. And there's a power living inside of you that is greater than you, and you and I just need to access that and realize that, and we can leave with that kind of victory in our lives. And so David, when he comes to the Philistine, he says, you come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And by the way, I want you to see yourself differently today. I want you to see yourself as precious in the eyes of the Lord. You are his son. You are his daughter. And God sees the battle. And God wants to defeat that giant in your life today. He wants to do that. It says, this day the Lord will hand you over to me. And I'm going to strike you down and cut off your head. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Now David said that how many know he prophesied it and the world today knows because of David and Goliath that there is a God in Israel who is greater than the giant. Isn't that true? It is the truth. Well, Jesus, in his well-known address known as the Sermon on the Mount, focuses on the issue of genuine discipleship. And what he's doing is moving these individuals from an external religious expression of faith to an internal heart 
transformation. How many see that? He starts addressing the heart issue. He starts getting in on the inside. It's not so much that you and I just conform to a religious standard outwardly. God wants to change our hearts. How many think that's amazing? God wants to do an inner work in our lives. And that's why so often in the past, the church has really focused on the external. You know, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And so they've preached along that line. What I'm saying to you, what we need to have is a change of heart. See, when you're like David, what made David unique? And it says this in the book of Acts, that David was a man after the heart of God. And what does it mean to be a person after the heart of God? But someone who's willing to do the will of God. Someone who says, God, my life is not my own. My life belongs to you. My life is yours. You've designed it. You have purpose and meaning for it. And I want to fulfill your will for my life. And so David is a beautiful, expression of that in his life. Now, there are a number of giants I think that we struggle with in our culture that influence our inner life. And one of those, uh, two of those giants that oppose us in living a godly life or the right management of our life, I'm going to use that term too, okay, how we manage our lives, are secular humanism and materialism. Now let me just point out, so what is secular humanism? It exalts man and denies God's supremacy in our lives. In other words, we put ourselves above God. How many here, is there a temptation to put yourself above God? Is there a temptation to do your will rather than God's will? That's secular humanism. So we're always battling that in our lives. I'm not gonna focus on that today, okay? Our text isn't focusing on that. So I wanna move to the second one, materialism. And when we think of materialism, all the t- we always think of money or greed and that kind of stuff. But I want to give you a, maybe a more broad understanding and how all-encompassing materialism is. Materialism is simply that philosophy of life where we place that which we see as the priority of our lives. In other words, I'm letting the things that are visible shape what I'm doing in life. Do you know what God's interested in? First of all, God's interested in the invisible. God is interested in the eternal. Now, he's not negating the physical. We're all living in a physical context. God gave us a physical life. God gave us a physical body. So I'm going to make a statement. The physical aspect of our lives are not evil. Actually, God wants to use the physical stuff, but with the right priority. That you and I are not just living for this time and we're not just living for the physical, but we're actually living with a higher priority in mind. We're living for that which is eternal and is actually invisible. And I want to even encourage us. I I read something so profound this week that really I've been meditating and it's profoundly affected my thinking. And it's simply this, that you and I cannot live in the past. You and I must live with the future in mind. And so... You know, when you're young, you have no problem doing that. There's a lot of hope. You've got a lot of years ahead of you. At least you see yourself that way, and you're thinking, I've got all these years. But when you start getting older, what happens is people start looking backwards, and it gets us into all kinds of trouble because we need to put what's behind us behind us. We need to have something to look forward to, and that's what makes life worth living is having something to look forward to. And I want to just declare to you today that most of you have a short runway. 
In other words, we're thinking at the end of our life, that's it. But you see, the beauty of the Bible is that he's revealing to us we have the eternal life. And so you and I have a long vision that we're looking into eternity and not only what's happening in the now is important, but what happens in the future is going to be amazing. And we actually don't just live for 70, 80, 90, 100 years. You and I are living for all of eternity. And God has amazing things for us to do, not only in time, but also in eternity. And we need to enlarge our vision of where we're going. So materialism, I believe, is probably one of the key giants that immobilizes and paralyzes the church, and particularly in North America, from moving forward. It keeps us from real spiritual freedom. It robs us of joy and hope and a future because we're so locked into the present. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us three metaphors to help us understand the nature of, of uh, materialism. So a metaphor is a figure of speech comparing something that is similar in order for us to gain a better understanding. So he's going to give us these pictures to teach us spiritual truths. And so let's look, take a look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. I'm going to look all the way down to verse 24, just these five verses. And then next week, Lord willing, I'll speak on worry, okay, and anxiety. Let me, let me go here first. It says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So what is he warning us against? A wrong priority. He's saying, don't make the things of this earth your primary treasure. That's what he's saying. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's elevating our runway, if I can say it that way. He's elevating our lives where moth and rust does not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is Jesus actually concerned about? Our heart. That's what the big concern is in this whole sermon. That's what discipleship's all about. Where is your heart? And God wants to affect profound change in our hearts. And so I want to look at these three metaphors to help us slay the giant of materialism. The first one is learning to uh, in, invest our material substance. In other words, what's the proper priority? Where should the focus be? When we, what, what we consider of greatest value our heart pursues. Do you realize that? Whatever you value, your heart follows. See, your heart is determining the direction of your life. So a lot of times we go, well, I'm having a problem where I'm going. I'm saying, you know, I gotta, you know, that's not the problem. The problem is back here. We gotta make a heart adjustment. If we make the right heart adjustments, we're gonna go in the right direction. How many can see that? It's, it's resetting our heart. That's what Jesus is interested in here. What we treasure, we go after. If we pursue the things of this earth, then our hearts become entangled with materialism. When we pursue what's temporary, when we make that the end goal, we're missing the point. It's not that these things are bad, it's just that when we make them the goal, they, become, they corrupt us, it's what they do. So the question becomes, are we using what we possess or does what we possess use us? You see the question? 
That's interesting. You know, the things that I have, eventually I become a servant of those things if I'm not careful. The more you have, the more you have to care for what you have. And eventually they possess you rather than you possessing them and using them to accomplish the true goal of life. That's what we're talking about. D.A. Carson says, for the things we treasure actually govern our lives. What we value tugs at our minds and emotions. It consumes our time with planning, daydreaming, and effort to achieve. So the question I'm raising today is, what am I pursuing after? What is it that I'm really interested in, a, in achieving? And I've discovered something. You know, people say, well, I don't have time for this. Do you know what you're just basically saying? That's not my priority. That's what it comes down to. See, we always have time for what we really want. We just have to sit down and say, what is it I'm really wanting? What is it that I'm really pursuing? What is it I'm really going after? That's the question I have to answer. Now, most of us, we don't sit down and reflect on these things. That's why it's great to come to church, by the way. So you have a moment now. We have to sit down. I'm making you reflect on what you're spending your energy, time, resources, and life on. I'm, I'm just raising the question, where's your heart? And if it's in the wrong place, you're going to end up in the wrong place. You know what I mean by that? You're going to end up pursuing something that at the end you're going to be deeply disappointed with rather than saying, you know, maybe today I need to make an adjustment in my heart so that I'm actually pursuing the thing that's actually eternal and not just temporal. F.W. Filson writes that if a man divides his interests and tries to focus on God and possessions, he has no clear vision and he will live without clear orientation or direction. Life not focused on God's claim and command is lost in spiritual darkness. Interesting. Now, I think there's a number of ways a person can misunderstand what Jesus is saying here, and I think that that happens a lot. The first thing that we that we can misunderstand is that we're, you know, we have to give up everything, give up all our earthly wealth. Some people have actually done that, but not many, but some have. What a person reads is that we're not to store up, and then we might think, I need to get rid of it all. That's not exactly what Jesus is saying. He's actually pointing out that earthly wealth is not secure. What he's pointing out is that if we're not careful and we make that the goal we can lose everything we've put in, into our lives. In other words, if you're making what you see, material things, all put into your one basket, he says, be careful because material things can be stolen, material things can be corrupted, material things can be taken away from you through rust and, and uh, old age, you know, the disuse of it, you know, all of those things. You can work so hard for these things and eventually at the end, they don't have any value. He says that's the wrong goal. That's what Jesus is telling us. He's, he's trying to give us a proper perspective on wealth. The other viewpoint is that we don't heed the warning and we're guilty of this very thing of storing up for ourselves earthly treasures. You know, that's our goal in life. You know, we want to have the whatever vehicle or whatever house or whatever, you know. You follow what I'm saying? That becomes the goal. And at the end, what we realize is we think that's a source of security. And yes, we could argue from Ecclesiastes, money has a measure of security to it, but it's not the ultimate security. You could lose it all. It could be taken from you in many different ways. There's an irony in life that we start out with nothing. How many know we're born into this world? We don't come in the world with anything. Not even a little bit of clothing. Isn't that true? 
we have nothing. And then we start working at accumulating things. And then it's interesting, at the end, we give it all away. We end up with nothing. We start with nothing, we end up with nothing. How many have ever seen a U-Haul, you know, behind a hearse? You can't take it with you. That's the reality. And yet some people think they can. There's only one way you can bring it with you, and that's investing it wisely and using what God's given you to advance the kingdom of God. You know, a few years ago, we had a couple of elderly saints in our church, and one of the older guys was sharing how they had downsized. They had sold their 1,400-square-foot home, and they had moved into a 400-square-foot retirement unit. So they're shrinking down. We start up, shrink up. You know, blow up, shrink down. And then he said this, was very insightful, and it's the truth. They said, I never realized how much freedom entered our life at that moment because we now simplified our lives. What's the greatest pressure that most of us have? Time. What we discover is that things often complicate our lives and rob us of time. Jesus in the parable of the sower and the seed warns against earthly goods becoming the object of our affection and attention. He says uh, in Mark 4, 18, still others like seeds sown among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Now, I don't know about you, but here we're taking in the word of God. When we act on the word of God, our lives become fruitful. But how does the enemy rob us and destroy our effectiveness as Christians? You know, we think, well, we commit these bad sins. No, I think what happens is we start worrying, we start accumulating, we start getting distracted. It's so insidious and so subtle, we don't even see it. And pretty soon, we are no longer engaged in effectively ministering to other people because we don't have time. Yes. Okay, are we catching on? Are, how many are seeing it? How many are kind of getting a little sense of what I'm trying to communicate here? Verse 20, he says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. So how do you store up for yourself treasure in heaven? Uh, well, the concept of treasures in heaven as good works stored up before God is a common one in Jewish tradition. Donald Hagner is a New Testament scholar. He brings that out. It's the truth. This is how you invest. This is how you move it into eternity. I'm investing what I have into the lives of other people. That's powerful. That's a good investment. It has huge returns, by the way. It has eternal returns. So if I was an investment broker today, I'd say, listen, I have an investment portfolio that's out of this world. You don't have to worry about it ever crashing or deflating or any of those problems with it. This is a sure thing. You can invest here and eventually it's going to turn up where you're going to go, wow, was that ever an amazing investment? How many like winning on investments? You know, that's good. This is one way to do it. Have you ever wondered what would have happened if the rich young ruler that came to Jesus had not turned away sorrowfully because he was trusting in his riches and rather would have followed Christ? What would have happened? Well, I think there is a story in church history that ties into that story, and it's the story of the man by the name of Count Nicholas Zinzendorf. Some of you might know who he is. He was a young man. He was rich. 
He was a wealthy aristocrat in Europe, and he was traveling, and one day he came to the art museum in Dusseldorf and saw the Dominico's work of Christ entitled Behold the Man, which is really, you know, a portrait of the crown thorn Jesus. And reading the inscription below it, it said, uh, I have done this for you, what have you done for me? And Zinzendorf said to himself, I have loved him for a long time, but I've never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever, whatever he leads me to do. And from that moment, his life became extraordinary. He began to use his estate and drew people that had a real passion for Christ to the point where this group actually took on personal responsibility to share the gospel, which at that time was not happening in Europe. Really an amazing thing. He became, and many church historians recognize him as the leader of a group called the Moravians. Now the Moravians actually had an influence on John Wesley. And uh, boy, the world was impacted because of these guys. Within 10 years, more than 70 Moravian missionaries from a community of not more than 600 people had answered the call. They'd gone out to other places to preach the gospel. Within 30 years, no fewer than 226 missionaries had been sent out. And by the way, the Moravian community continued a vigil of prayer every day, day in and day out for over 100 years. A very amazing community, very powerful, small group, had a great impact. Mythologist Herbert Cain says, their amazing success was due to two strong convictions. One, that world evangelization is the prime obligation of the church. And number two, that this obligation is the personal responsibility of every member of the Christian community. The early Moravians, for the most part, men with little or no formal education, but that didn't stop them. What they lacked in knowledge, they made up for in piety and in passion. And when they went out with their wives and little ones, they were prepared to live, die, and be buried in the land of their adoption. Actually, one, two young men were so committed to reaching uh, one of the Caribbean islands, and nobody would let them on because it was a plantation and all these people were slaves, that these two young men sold themselves into slavery to, in order to be on that plantation to win the slaves. I'm telling you, it's really amazing. Jesus points out uh, the dangers of earthly treasures. He says they either deteriorate over time or through natural cause or else they are stolen. The tragedy is that one is given one's life to something that will eventually be taken from them. That's what we need to know. Let me move on to the second metaphor. Is the metaphor of sight. The eye was deemed by the ancients as the avenue in which light came into the body. That makes sense, and it still does. I mean, if your eye is destroyed, all you have is darkness. So, you know, they were right about that. An unhealthy eye distorts one's vision. How many know that's true? That's why some of us are wearing glasses. Here Jesus utilizes this idea and challenges our spiritual vision. A good eye was single in its focus. Jesus says in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, this little adjective, good, is a little per per perplexing. 
I'm quoting from D.A. Carson. He says, the word in the original was used in the Septuagint. That's the early translation of the Old Testament, the Greek one, to mean signalness, singleness of purpose, undivided loyalty, which is why the King James translated it single. And then the good eye, or as we have seen, the single eye is the one fixed on God, unwavering in its gaze, constant in its fixation. In other words, we could say it this way, a contemporary way of saying it, I only have eyes for you. Isn't that a beautiful? Now some of you go, I know that song, Pastor. I only have eyes for you. Let, let me just say this. Could we just say this to Jesus? I only have eyes for you. Is that beautiful? That's amazing to be able to say that to him and to actually live that out. The, the word translated by the NIV as the good eye is also the word translated elsewhere as generous. And the word for bad eye or evil eye speaks not only of jealousy but also of stinginess. So as one writer says, there seems to be a double meaning here. Not only is Jesus focusing on the theme of undivided loyalty but also a detachment or worry about material concerns because of a generous spirit. So in other words, they're not worrying about these things because they just have the kind of heart. By the way, when you're a generous person, it's amazing how God brings things to you. Anybody notice that? The people who are the most generous are never in lack. They just have a generous spirit and because they're sowing graciously, God is bringing things back to them. See, I look at it this way. I always use this illustration. If I have my hands opened, God can take whatever he wants, but he can also put whatever he wants in. See, my hands are open. You know? But if my hands are like this and I'm trying to hang on to the little bit I have, guess what happens? It's really hard for God to put anything in. My hands are closed. You see? So what I'm trying to say is when you and I really trust God, we can actually open our hands. One of our problems about you know, materialism and giving and all these things is because we have fear in our hearts that if we don't make all these good decisions, we'll lose it all. I'm going, no, it's about trusting God. Learning to trust God. One picture of someone who could fit the category of an eye that lacked signalness of purpose was Lot's wife. How many know the story? You know, she was warned not to turn back. You remember that? And when she did, what happened? She became a pillar of salt. Sodom is a picture of our world about to be destroyed. You know what's really tragic? Sometimes we, we're so locked into this world. Can I tell you, it's going to be at least renovated. <laughs> okay? So, you know, how many have ever done a renovation project? Yeah. What usually happens is there's a lot of stuff that gets thrown away, right? You know, we just tear it apart, you know. I remember renovating the first time. You just terrorize stuff and throw it away. And yet, sometimes we're acting as if all the stuff we're collecting is going to be here forever. Folks, God's got a big renovation job coming. So, you know, better be careful. You don't focus too much on that stuff. <clears throat> we cannot live for two worlds, though we do live in two worlds. The issue is always the heart. That which captures our affections determines our destiny. That is so important. But let me move to the final metaphor. It's of slavery. The word here that, you know, it's, it's translated serve in, in the NIV here. It says, no man can serve two masters. But really, the word there is the word slave. You know, you can't be a slave of two people. Now, 
I guess I read somewhere that that's technically possible, but it's very difficult. And how many know, uh, have you ever had two jobs? How many have ever had two jobs at one time? How many know it's really difficult to really focus when you have two jobs? Because you're constantly being pulled all the time, right? It's very difficult. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us here. You can't have two masters. Either you will respect the one and despise the other. You're going to be in a conflicted state of mind. And so he's telling us here in verse 24, either he will hate the one, love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, the King James says, or money in the NIV. We cannot live for God and live for advancing ourselves in this world and focus on that which is material and temporary and still think we can focus on God and that which is eternal. It's a conflict of interest. You'll have all kinds of struggles. It reminds me of the story of Elijah. Remember Elijah comes to the nation of Israel. What we have to understand in the context is that Elijah is calling the nation back to God. Oh, but wait a minute, they've never stopped worshiping Yahweh. They never stopped worshiping God, but they were also worshiping idols. So they were worshiping both, you know? And so this is what Elijah says when he comes before the people. And he went before the people, he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people, excuse me, said nothing. You see, what he was saying is, choose you this day. Whom will you serve? Do you know what idolatry is? Because that's what he was calling them into account over. Idolatry is when we put anything or anyone above God. That becomes that which, which we are worshiping. The Apostle Paul describes idolatry as a strong desire, something that we covet after. You know, the word coveting means a strong desire for. And then in Colossians, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Okay, let's talk about this for a minute. We all have an earthly nature. Does everybody know that? We are made of this world. We have an earthly nature. And what I'm saying is when you and I come to Christ, God gives us a new nature. But he doesn't get rid of the old nature. In a sense, there's two natures living within us now. And so now we have a choice. Which nature are we going to allow to dominate our lives? And that's why Paul writes this. Put to death the first nature, the earthly nature, because that nature wants to do what's wrong in God's sight versus the new nature which wants to please God. So I always know when someone becomes a Christian, the first way I know is there's a desire to please God. So if you have a desire to please God, you have a new nature. That means God's done a work in your life and you are truly a Christian. You are a follower of Christ. You have a new nature. Now, if you don't have that desire to please God and trust Christ and do what's right in his eyes and please him, God can give you a new nature. That's the good news. Isn't that beautiful? You can say, God, I, I lack that in my life. And today I want to receive that new nature. And you can say, Lord, come into my life. Give me this new nature. That's what, the, you know, theologically it's called being regenerated. God gives us his divine nature. But that doesn't mean he's going to take out the whole nature. Wouldn't it be great if he just took it out? You know, but it doesn't work that way. Now we have a choice. See, a lot of us said, well, if I was Adam or Eve, I would have never done what they did in the garden. Let me tell you something. All of us are Adam and Eve. 
You see, we now have two natures and we gotta decide which one we're gonna obey. And Paul says, put to death. In other words, mortify your earthly nature. And he, he describes what they are, sexual immorality. You gotta have control over your, your, your sexual appetite. The fruit or result of the spirit is that we have self-control. You know, then it says impurity, lust, which are the strong desires, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. And I'm gonna say something shocking, but there's a lot of people who, you know, have professed Christianity, but their lifestyle says greed is controlling their lives. And I'm gonna tell you something. They're not gonna inherit the kingdom of God because the Bible says that. You can't have... You can't be worshiping God and idols and expect to get into heaven. It doesn't work. The idols themselves are going to keep you from liftoff, if I can say it that way. You're just not going to get there. So he says, we must set our affections on things above and not on things below. Warren Worsby says, Jesus makes it clear that a right attitude towards wealth is a mark of true spirituality. The Pharisees were covetous and used religion to make money. I'm going to say something strong here. Woe to the pastors and leaders who are using religion to make money. You think there's some in our day? Unfortunately, yes. Woe to them because they're behaving like a Pharisee. And those are the people Jesus really got after. I've read the New Testament. If we have the true righteousness of Christ in our lives, then we will have a proper attitude towards material wealth. Nowhere did Jesus magnify poverty or criticize the legitimate getting of wealth. God made all things, including food, clothing, and precious metals, but he made them to be used not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. See, whatever God gives me, it's a gift. So anything you have, you could, well, yeah, but I earned it, Pastor. No, God gave it to you. You have to see that it was a gift from God, the ability to earn, the ability to think, the ability to create a business, the ability to do any of these things is a gift from God. So whatever you are about, God gifted you. And you are responsible now with everything God gave you. And if God gives you much, much will be required. If God gives you little, less is required. You see how it works? But notice, something is required. And what he requires is our entire heart. And when he has our heart, he has us all. He's got everything about us. And then he can work at using our lives in a powerful way. God has declared that all things he has made are good and God knows that we need certain things in order to live. In fact, he's given us richly all things to enjoy. It's not wrong to possess things, but it's wrong for things to possess us. There are many warnings in the Bible against covetousness, and I totally agree with Warren Worsby. Joseph Stowell, former president of Moody, says the real point of materialism is not how much we have, but what has us. It's not what we hold, but how tightly we hold it. Not what we have, but how we got it. The test of materialism is whether our goods have made us proud or grateful, self-sufficient, or God-sufficient. How many are seeing the differences? All right. Okay. Let me close with this. Why don't we stand this morning? I could say a lot about this topic, but this is 
We've got enough going on in our system. Here's what I want to say to each of us this morning. How many can see that this is actually a giant? Does anybody see that? Anybody see this a giant? We're being bombarded with the things we see every minute. That's why it's so hard for us to focus on that which we don't see. Because you know what? We have a body, which God gave us, and he put us in a material world. And by the way, the body and the material world are all good. These are all good things God gave us. But when we serve the things we see, we become its slave. That's the warning today. That's the warning Jesus gives us. You see, we have to slay that giant in our lives so that we can be free to serve the one who is invisible. God is invisible, folks. God is eternal. I don't see him. And so a lot of people have a hard time believing in God because he's not seen. He's invisible, right? Come on. People will tell you. I can't see it. I don't believe it. What they're telling me is I'm a materialist. I'm not a materialist. I know that there's something beyond the world in which we're seeing. That there's something beyond the temporal. And that people who live in time and in history have also a different runway. They have an eternal runway. And I'll tell you, it's so important we get this right. Because if our goal is just that which we see, we're going to live for the wrong things. Our hearts are going to be in the wrong place. How many see that? You see it now? How many say, you know what I need? I need an adjustment. I need a divine adjustment in my heart that I will pursue that which is eternal and that which is invisible. That I will live to bring glory and honor to God. See, I think there's a theme coming week after week here. What's the theme? Not my will, yours be done. Not living for myself, but living for God's glory. And when we do these things, our life becomes richer. Isn't that great? We don't become a slave to the things that we possess because now they're possessing us. But now we are free to use what God's blessed us with in such a way that we can magnify and glorify God with our lives, which is what God's intention is all along. You know, my prayer for you today is that you will be David's today. That you will rise up against this amazing giant called materialism and slay it today. How many say, I want to rise up? I want to rise up and be a David conquering this giant that will actually diminish my life and make me a captive to that which is temporary. I want to rise up within me. And I want to have something that's even greater. I want to aspire to something which is eternal. I want to live for something which will never die. I want to live for significance and meaning that will go way beyond my life. And I'm not going to just live for myself, but I'm living for the honor and glory of God. And in that meantime, many people are blessed because I'm not just living for myself. The moment we stop just living for ourselves, people around us are blessed. The moments we become self-centered and we start just living for ourselves, we are diminished as people and many people around us are impoverished because we're not there for them. My prayer is that God will enrich us so that you and I can help those around us who are impoverished. Amen. I'm not just talking about monetarily. I'm talking about even emotionally. I'm talking about spiritually. I'm talking about in every which way. 
So with every head bowed today, no one looking around, how many need to say, I want to rise up. I want to be a David. I want to slay this giant in my soul. Just raise your hand. That's you right now. Just raise your hand. I want to slay this giant in my soul. So Father, our security is not in the things we have. It's in the one whom we know. And we know you. And I pray today that you will give us the right heart. Lord, a heart after you. Give us the desire of knowing you and serving you and walking with you and doing your will. Living for your glory and for your honor. And so being enriched in the process that we can enrich the lives of those around us. Help us, oh God, with an open hand to receive from you today and then become channels of blessing. Help us to become like you, liberal, generous, kind, understanding, caring, all those amazing attributes that you have. May they just flow in and through our lives. We just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this